What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And thank you very much, Scott. Uh, and welcome, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson in this afternoon for Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. Did today's jobs report just cement the end of rate hikes for this cycle? We'll debate that and look at one job-related trade our market guest says will pay off even if the labor market continues to cool from here. Plus one fast casual food stock having a good week, but earnings a mixed bag. The CEO will join us with what he is seeing from the American consumer. And from China to rates to jobs to energy, it is a special three buys in a bail edition. We're going to look at the week's big themes and a trade to make for each one of them. And that's all ahead. But we begin with today's markets and Dom Chu with the numbers. Hey, Dom. Very bullish, Tyler. And it's been a very bullish week for stocks overall. We are currently on pace for one of the, if not the best of the weeks for the stock market so far this year. The S&P 500, just to give you an idea, so far just this week alone is up roughly 6 to 7%. Again, just on a one-week-to-date basis, the S&P is currently at 43.68, up about 51 points. This is, by the way, just about session highs for the stock market. At the highs, up roughly 51 points, up 17 points, even at the lows on the heels of that jobs number. So up nearly nearly one and a quarter percent. The Dow Industrial is up about one percent as well, 34,148. The last trade there. The Nasdaq Composite pacing the advance. That tech trade really lending itself to a one and a half point gain in the composite. 13,487. Interest rates moving lower has been a big part of that story so far. The 10-year benchmark U.S. Treasury yield is currently 4.535%. Just to give you an idea, on an intraday basis back on October 23rd, that level hit an intraday high of 5.02%. That's how far it's dropped so far this this week. Again, just a massive move lower. At one point today, it was around 4.48%. So that interest rate story going lower, driving up valuations, that could be one of the stories there. If you take a look at another way to look at it, the ETF that tracks the long-term government bond market, this one ticker TLT is up one and a third percent right now, $88.24. This kind of low since the October 23rd level is up roughly six to seven percent as well. So it's almost stock-like returns for a government bond-focused ETF, just to give you an idea of perspective. And then, of course, the mega cap technology trade getting a bid because of those lower interest rates. Apple has some concerns about earnings. That's why it's down about three quarters of a percent, which is off the session lows, by the way. But Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, NVIDIA, all posting solid gains on that move today. So it appears as though, Tyler, for now, the risk aversion trade has been set aside and people are a little bit more comfortable going long stocks with interest rates on the move lower. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much. Let's start, folks, with the jobs report from this morning. Non-farm payrolls increased by 150,000. That was just under the 170,000 economists expected. While both September and August numbers were revised lower by a combined 101,000. That's a significant cut. So what does this weaker data mean for the broader economy? Richmond Fed President Thomas Barkin says it's a pleasant surprise. What I've been hearing is normalizing. 
Um, uh, labor market in better balance, supply's been getting better, uh, demand's coming off, particularly in places like professionals. It's still hot in skilled trades. You still hear a lot of heat in skilled trades. But I, I wasn't surprised, frankly, I was, uh, it was welcome to see that the, 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 uh, the gradual lessening that we've been expecting is continuing. But one of our next guests says the more overall conditions ease, the more the Fed may have to raise rates again in 2024. Joining us now, Diane Swank, KMPG chief economist, along with Steve Leisman. Folks, welcome. Diane, I, I, I'm curious, why does the easing of financial conditions, if that's what we're witnessing here, mean that it's more likely that the Fed will raise rates in 2024? The, the markets seem to not be saying that. Well, I think there's a key issue here, and that is that the Fed included financial conditions in their assessment of why they could pause. And I don't think they want to raise rates again in December. I do think they want to have this be the end in rate hikes. But they were looking to financial market conditions actually doing some of that heavy lifting for them. Now, we may get lucky and the economy may continue to normalize, as Barkin said. That said, I look at this jobs report and I say, well, we've got 96,000 people in this report that were affected by strikes. That's beginning to already unwind with some of the tentative deals that we have on the table. And I think that's important to remember because you had 96,000 back onto that 150,000 and all of a sudden you're well over 200,000 again. And I think that's very important to remember. We also know the strikes took a toll on hours worked and on wages during the month. So some of the normalization is a bit of a head fake and transitory, dare I say it, due to strikes. And we we'll, could see wages pick up again by the end of the year. So mm. this is something the Fed has to watch very carefully. They included financial conditions in their statement. The question is whether they will be able to sort of rely on that or is that going to be something they regret in 2024? So, Steve, if I'm understanding Diane correctly, you know, the 10-year bond has dropped about a half percent in the last 10 days, from a little over 5 to 4.54 as we begin this hour. So that's an easing of financial conditions. Diane says the Fed was probably looking for the markets to do some of its work for it. It was doing that maybe at 5 percent, but it's doing less of that at 4.5. You know, Tyler, I, I don't feel on a Friday like looking for something new to worry about. Okay. I, I was worried about <laughs> rates being too high. They've eased off. I'm not going to worry about rates being too low, not especially if I take a chart of the 10-year, which is me speaking to the control room as I look yes. at you right now. Yes. And I look at chart a chart of the 10-year from there May. From May. What I see is I look at that, or sorry, April low, of 326 basis points, 3.26, there you go. And I see that financial conditions are quite a bit still restrictive from where they were. And so the fact that they're not five and they're four and a half or 454 is not gonna give me trouble to think that the market, that, the, that, that, that financial conditions are easing to the point that the Fed would be back in play. And I will say this because I always disagree with Diane advisedly. I'll say the market is with me on this. Maybe they're over their skis. But if you look at the probabilities this morning, 
The rate cut is out of the pricing entirely, almost. The rate cut. Sorry, rate hikes rate are hike. almost entirely out, and rate hikes are in. I'll walk you through two charts here. No, One, no, no, no. Rate cuts are in. Rate hikes are out, out. and cuts are in. Cuts are in. Thank okay. you. Did I mess that up? I'm yes. so sorry. But yes, take a look here at the probability. <laughs> for the first five, time in your life, man. 5% coming for December right now. And then I can't read this. There, where is it? There it is. 11% for January, 10% for March. More interesting is what's happened now to just that's the, those are the, those are the hikes. And now look at the cuts is the next chart. What you'll see is something like a 55% probability of a cut now in May. That wasn't even in play before. Now it's in play. So I think the market is like, well, what's going on? What's going on is the reason why this is down, why yields are down is because three things that caused them to be higher have now resolved themselves. The Fed less hawkish. It was the Fed's hawkishness in the September meeting that caused yields to rise. The Treasury issuance was a big problem in August. They took some of that away. And the third thing is the, um, uh, the issuance and, and, and then just the growth story easing back. Diane, react. So I, I don't dis entirely disagree with Steve, and we always aren't quite um, in full disagreement or full agreement, I think. But I think my perspective is, is that if we keep going on this financial market rally, if we see bond yields come down even further, that's when we start to get in. Does it undo some of the progress we've made on inflation? And the Fed already expects the move down and the descent on inflation to be bumpy. If it gets more sticky, that becomes a problem. The stunning growth that we had over the summer was great. And you really saw Chairman Powell sort of Jay lean into that in his press report. And you did not see a Fed, even though I think, Steve, you asked a great question at the presser about is the bias to tighten still? And he sort of said, yeah, kind of. But there was no signal that the right. Fed was going to tighten again in November. And I agree with that. And that's where I, I'm at as well. And I don't have an additional tightening. We do have the Fed mm -hmm. peaking where they're at. However, if financial conditions continue to ease, you do up the ante that the Fed has to go back in and you but get Diane, a stickier inflation. It is Diane, something I, got, I think that is an issue when they put that into financial, when they put it in the financial conditions in their statement, right? I got three things I want to throw at you. One is I think the jobs report today was softer. You had the revisions downward. That's one. I got two ISMs this week, both of which ended up being weaker than expected. It tells me the service sector may be easing back. Manufacturing sector went down further. So, um, I think we may have been through yeah, this. Manufacturing was just, that was the UAW stuff, Steve. I mean, that really is sort of a circular story. We lost 44,700 workers or 800 workers due to strikes this month. 96,000, the highest since 1997 affected in the month when UPS went on strike in August of 1997, affected by strikes as well. That also raised the unemployment rate and we saw it and could trace it in information in the sector by the actors and the writer's strike. The writer's strike started to unwind during the month, but the actor's strike was still out there. We saw it in the wages there, and that helped suppress that as well. So that's where I look at it and say, listen, you got to add those numbers back in, and it's still a very solid jobs report, and it still is a little more tight than the Fed would like. All and right, I would I'll give even Diane overlay it a bit. I give you that round, Diane. Yeah, but 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 wasn't okay, this well, wasn't this effectively I'll, I'll throw it up for both of you. Precisely the kind of jobs report the Fed might like to see. 
I'll take it. I think so. I think Diane is right. And, and I did do the, the edition live on set at 8.31, maybe not quite as well as I could have. The idea of the 150 adding back 30 or 40,000 of, of striking, striking workers. workers. So it's mm-hmm. still, and you, it means the private but 96, sector. 96,000 affected. Okay, right, right. Fair enough. Um, a a large right. number affected. So it may be a little <laughs> bit stronger, but it is still an easing down from the 336, plus the downward revisions to the prior months, which were not affected by the strikes, at least not as much. Um, so that, to me, is, is that. And plus you had the wage number being at 0.2%. I look, Tyler, not at absolute levels. I'm trying to gauge this issue that I call pressure. How much pressure is the labor market going to exert on the economy mm-hmm. and potentially through inflation? And I think when I look at lower wages, participation rate about where it was before, and then lower payroll growth, I see less pressure on inflation. All right, we've talked, Diane, I'm going to give you the last word, Diane. We've talked a lot about the Fed and, and, and rates and the pressure on the rate and the jobs report and so on and so forth. If you sweat away, you take away all of the manufacturing issues related to the strike, how healthy is manufacturing in America right now? The manufacturing sector is actually holding up much better than we expected. A lot of sectors are holding up much better than we expected. I do think it's important, and this is a nod to Steve, in terms of how the labor market has changed. Let's take this to the point and end it on this point, and that is 90% of job gains of the acceleration in job growth we saw over the summer was due to three sectors, leisure and hospitality, healthcare, and public sector government, mostly public education. That even was stronger in this jobs mm-hmm. report. And I think that's very important because those three sectors are your least interest rate sensitive sectors. The most interest rate sec- sensitive sectors are no longer driving job gains and job gains are much less dispersed and much more concentrated than they once were. And that's where I'm a little bit more worried and don't have that extra hike out there. I'm just worried that if the market keeps going, the Fed may need to put I, it in there, but there is a normalization occurring. I want to add one market. thing, Diane, which quick, quick is I should, I should have added it quickly. The thing that Powell might have done a jig about this week, if he was going to do a jig at all, was the decline in Uber labor costs. It was negative, 0.8. Productivity numbers yes. were strong. That's something that he's probably more Through excited about unit labor in costs the third quarter. on Thursday than he was jobs on yes. Friday. All right. Love to see the jig. All right, exactly. Diane, thank you very much. Good to see you <laughs> and Steve, as always. Great to have you. Pleasure. Next guest, betting on America's workforce, or rather she's betting on the companies that will help make it more productive. And there are three names in particular she likes for the long term. Joining us now with her picks, Kim Forrest. Bokeh. Can you pronounce that for me, Kim? Boca? Boca. Just plain old Boca. Like the Florida town. Boca. I'm big in kind Boca. Of, but it's a photography term, but we won't get into that. Okay. That's in the weeds. Whatever. Now yeah. we know better. Kim Forrest, thank you. Okay. All right. Let's take what was just said there by Diane and, and Steve uh, and bring it across the finish line into, into uh, what kinds of investments should I be looking at right now, particularly in the equity market? Sure. Well, I think this week really has given us a sigh of relief that things aren't you know, we're not going towards the, the word that everybody dreads, stagflation. And um, I think because of that, and because of the earnings season that we're just coming out of, we're getting a picture of how businesses are spending. And then this productivity says, holy cow, businesses have spent and somehow they've made their um, employees more productive. So 
I don't think productivity ever goes out of style for business. And I think that going into the next three to five years, investors really have to understand that the labor market isn't necessarily growing and companies are gonna have to spend to make the people that they have more productive. And that's why we like the names that we like. All right, so let's get to those names that you like. And they're not necessarily the sexy plays in, uh, in artificial intelligence. They're more sort of bricks and mortar plays. Sure. Well, they are touched by AI. We'll say that as opposed to that being the driver of their recent success. And yes, NVIDIA, I'm talking to you that you've really benefited from AI. I think both AMD, and they had a strong report this um, week, but it's more exciting that Lisa Su announced that they're going to have $2 billion in AI chips being sold next year in 2024, or at least that's her target. And um, I, I think that's very, very exciting. And I think Intel still has a shot at recovering some of their more high-tech business, and that, too, will go into some sort of AI. And a third name is Micron. Right. Because what people don't, I don't think you're going to ever underestimate the amount of data that AI needs. And that data, data has to live somewhere. And Micron, half of their product set goes towards memory or, you know, storage. So I think that's really exciting. And I think the growth of storage and the prices that they can get for storage is holding up Micron right now and will drive it in the future. You know, so much of the market's gains such as they are or such as they remain uh, this year have been driven by those seven uh, magnificent seven stocks. Where are you on those babies? Well, you know, I think if chat GPT doesn't take over the world, NVIDIA investors might be disappointed. And I'd never like to say that technology is going to roll out on investors' timeline. That's something that you can count on. It's always going to take longer. Um, it's not going to be the magic that you think in the short term, but it's going to surprise in the long term. And that's how just about every new technology has ever rolled out. And that's kind of why I don't like the Magnificent Seven is because so much of it is banking on a short timeline for AI and the sexy AI success. All right, Kim, thanks very much. We appreciate your time always. Kim Forrest. Thank you. Thank you. All right, coming up, a read on the consumer from the CEO of the fast casual chain Portillo's, or maybe it's Portillo's. Shares have struggled since the IPO a couple of years ago, but they are having their best week since June on the heels of results. And later on in our program, a special edition of Three Buys and a Bail looking at the big themes dominating the markets this week, including the Fed decision and this name our trader calls a buy in the rate-sensitive category. We will reveal it later on the program. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You 
ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric CDX Type S. Give up. Order now at Acura.com. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Shares of the fast casual chain Portillo's having a strong week, up nearly 9%. Uh, The company reporting earnings in line with expectations yesterday, while revenues were a touch light, uh, at least with expectations. Management saying traffic trends remain about the same, but waving a yellow flag a little bit about the lasting impacts of both commodity and wage inflation on that earnings call. Joining us now to discuss is Portillo's CEO, Michael Osanlu. And if I were from Chicago, I would never have said Portillo's. I would have said, I would have known absolutely that it is Portillo's and you serve Chicago hot dogs with all the works. I apologize for that. But, you know, I often look at, when when I'm looking at restaurants, I look at overall, companies like yours, I look at overall sales. Your overall sales were up very strongly. Your same store sales were up 4%. That is a good sign. Yeah. I guess my question is, how much of that increase in sales is related to price increases and how much of it can be attributed to actually stronger traffic, more people coming in yeah. and visiting your uh, outlets? Well, first, nice to see you, Tyler. Thank you for that. And and we'll send you a chocolate cake so that we will be indelibly imprinted on your brain. <laughs> I love that. Um, we, we did. We were the beneficiaries of a little bit of uh, pricing in Q3, and our traffic was down a little bit. But what we're excited about is the trends going into the fourth quarter. We're very optimistic about where our business is. And I would tell you that Q3 felt a lot more typical of a pre-COVID world, like a 2019. There tends to be an ebb and flow in the restaurant industry. Uh, Q3 tends to be a little bit sluggish with back to school, et cetera. So uh, I, I feel really good about where our business is right now. I feel good about the underlying performance of our business. Uh, and I actually feel great about the margins that we generated in Q3. So uh, I, I'm very bullish on, on Portillo's. So tell us how um, rising prices, both for labor and for inputs, which would be food and, and, and materials, yeah. how are those affecting business? Where, how are they running? Well, look, it's, um, I don't want to be uh, overly Pollyanna and optimistic, but it's getting better. Every week, it's getting a little bit better. Um, our labor inflation in the quarter was up 1.9%. It's 4.8% for the year. But that's on the back of almost 30% increases in labor wage rates over the prior two years. So that's definitely mitigating. Commodities have started to taper off, and we're still guiding towards mid-single digits for the year. But the but the third quarter was better than the second, which was better than the first. So the trends are all in the right direction for us when it comes to those uh, cost pressures. How do you manage over the past several years when you see when you just mentioned the 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 really high wage inflation that you had there for the past couple of years? How do you keep your margins up in the face of that? What do you do? Yeah. It, it, It's a tough, it it is really tough. It's undeniably tough. I think it's been an incredibly, um, I don't know, what's the word, VUCA, volatile, uncertain experience for restaurateurs over the last couple of years. 
Obviously, pricing has to play a role in that. And I think we've all felt that pinch in the wallet. The good news is, you know, we've not taken any pricing in the back half of this year. We've committed to not taking any pricing. And I think that that's coming down. But uh, there's a, and then there's a lot of pick and shovel work, right? So on one hand, commodities have gotten better, but I, our teams have done great work in sourcing our beef from alternate sources, buying from Australia, going through different kinds of smart moves. We've gotten really good at labor optimization. You know, we're building kitchens that are more friendly for our team members. There's less conveyance. This is a term I had to understand, but it's like walking back and forth in a kitchen is wasted effort. So we have modular systems where a team member could grab the French fries that's just right underneath them, dump them into the fryer with minimizing the steps. So um, we've gotten really smart about wasted effort in our kitchens, about being creative and thoughtful on the supply chain. And all of that has, has made us a better operator. Talk us through your plans for store expansion, uh, store growth, and regional expansion. Your, your outlets are largely concentrated, I would say, in the upper Midwest, Florida, California, Texas as well. Um, tell us about, about how many stores you might add and might you spread out a little bit uh, regionally? Yeah, it, it's fact. It's, it's probably the central tenet of our growth strategies that we're growing along the sun belt. And for no, you know, we all like nice weather, but it's because where America is moving to. So uh, when you look at the three fastest growing states in America, it's Texas, Florida, Arizona. Uh, the vast majority of our new restaurant growth is in those three states. We, we opened our first restaurant in uh, Dallas, Texas in January of this year. By January of 24, we're going to end up with five restaurants in the Dallas metropolitan area. So we're excited by that. We're building in Dallas. We're building in Arizona. We're building in Florida. Um, and, I, and I think that's a wonderful uh, balance for us between our strong core in Chicagoland, mm -hmm. but also uh, fantastic growth markets. People in Dallas are feeling pretty good right now. The Cowboys are winning. They just won the World Series. Yeah. Uh, you, got, you got good reason to be happy about Texas. Michael, thanks very much. That's we appreciate it. Thank you, Tyler. You bet. All right, let's turn to another indicator of consumer health, uh, credit scores. New data show that rising debt levels aren't necessarily putting a dent in people's scores. CNBC's senior personal finance correspondent Sharon Epperson here with the details. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Tyler. You know, a new report shows that consumers' credit scores have held up even as they've taken on more debt. The report is from Vantage Score, an independently managed joint venture of the credit reporting agencies Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. I spoke with Silvio Tavares, the CEO of Vantage Score, about the health of the consumer. This is what he told me in our exclusive interview. The reality is the consumer is actually quite healthy. The consumer is not maxed out. They're actually reducing their overall credit and managing credit pretty well. Vantage Score finds the average credit score is now a healthy 701. The lowest possible score is 300, below 660 is considered subprime, and 850 is a perfect score. Low unemployment and strong home equity are helping consumers, but delinquency rates on credit cards, mortgages, and auto loans are climbing, particularly among lower-scoring households. We are looking to see if a low-income recession is developing. We haven't really seen that happening, but we're watching it. And particularly in the case of delinquencies or late payments, we're already starting to see those lower-income, younger consumers having a tougher time keeping up with their payments. 
On-time payments are the biggest boost to credit scores. Also a key factor is how much credit you're using compared to your credit limit. Lenders use these scores to assess a borrower's ability to repay, and knowing those key factors and keeping them in line is really key to boosting and so keeping what, your score. what is the difference between a Vantage score and a FICO score? Well, the FICO score has been more popular with lenders. Mm -hmm. It's been around for decades. Vantage score is a bit newer. But the thing to know is that they both have that range between 300 and 850, but they may use a couple of different factors to really gauge your credit score. With FICO score, you need to have at least six months track record with some credit line, whether it's credit card or mortgage or a personal loan. With the Vantage score, you don't even need to have a credit card for them to come up with a score for you. They may use rental oh. payments. They may use student loan payments. So there are a lot of people that fall into that group that want a credit score and get one through Vantage Get one score. through Vantage as opposed mm -hmm. to FICO. Sharon, thanks. Sure. Good as always to see you. All righty, uh, join me and Sharon next Thursday, folks, to find out more ways to maximize your finances at the CNBC Your Money virtual event. It starts at noon Eastern on November 9th. You can register using the QR code that's on your screen right there or at CNBCEvents.com. Lots of crunchy information that we will be dispensing on that day. November 9th, your money. Coming up, Apple, disappointing Wall Street, implying revenue growth is going to be flat this holiday quarter compared with last year. Our Steve Kovac spoke with the CEO, Tim Cook, and will tell us what he's blaming for the miss, with the stock riding its longest monthly losing streak in more than a year. And check out shares of Overstock.com, the hedge fund JAT Capital, sending a letter to the board urging it to replace the CEO, Jonathan Johnson, blaming him for poor financial performance. JAT owns nearly 10% of the company and called on Overstock to consider selling some assets, overhauling its executive comp plan last month. Overstock shares now up about 4%. The exchange back after this. That? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Leslie Picker with your CNBC News update. The U.S. is flying unmanned drones over Gaza to search for hostages. The Pentagon press secretary confirmed the intelligence-gathering drones are assisting with hostage location efforts. There are still 10 Americans unaccounted for who officials believe are among more than 200 people taken hostage by Hamas and brought into Gaza on October 7th. Sam Bankman-Fried still behind bars today after being found guilty on all seven criminal counts against him. The failed crypto exchange founder was charged with wire fraud, conspiracy to commit fraud, and conspiracy to commit money laundering. He faces a maximum sentence of 115 years in prison. His, scheduling, his sentencing is scheduled for March 20th through the 24th. And the actor's strike is causing yet another delay, this time with Paramount Network's Yellowstone. The final installment of the TV show was scheduled to return this month, but... Not anymore. Paramount rushed its release back until November 2024, two years after the first half of the fifth season aired. So a uh, little disappointing news for those Yellowstone fans out there, Tyler. Got to wait for your Yellowstone. Thanks, Leslie. Mm -hmm. 
Coming up, here's another look at our mystery chart. Rate-sensitive name our trader calls a buy on the heels of this week's Fed decision. We will reveal it next. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back, everybody. If it's Friday, it's three buys and a bail, and we're going to trade some of the themes dominating the headlines this week. Uh, today's week of the expected jobs data, the second Fed pause in a row, solar stocks sinking on a big warning from Solar Edge, and weaker Chinese demand, pressuring results from companies ranging from Canada Goose to Apple. New Street Advisors Delano Sapporo has a trade on each. But before we get to his picks, let's take a look at the state of the consumer in China with CNBC's Eunice Yun. Kevin Lee's suit shop in Beijing's premier shopping district was relied on by financiers and real estate executives. But not this year, with business down 30 percent. The biggest reason people don't want to spend is the uncertainty about the future, he says. That's hitting brands such as Apple, Canada Goose, Estee Lauder and Yum China's KFC. So much is weighing on Chinese consumers' minds, like all the income lost during the pandemic lockdowns here. Retail sales are up 5.5% through September, but that compares poorly to 8.2% for the same period in 2019, before the pandemic. Instead, household deposits in the first half were up 9.8%, the biggest increase in a decade. Families feel poorer because of the real estate slump. New home prices are down 0.3% in September, the steepest fall in almost a year. Unemployment is high, especially among young people, at 21.3% last recorded. Everyone feels unsafe, this doctor told us. She cut her clothing budget from $150 a month to zero. All my friends, no matter the industry, are worried, this interior designer says. Frankly, I don't see any hope. Taylor Lee says customers who do come to his shop are spending less. Before the pandemic, they would buy suits for $3,000. Now they choose $700 options. I doubt consumption comes back even next year, Lee says. Eunice Yoon, CBC Business News, Beijing. Delano, welcome. Before we get to your China pick, I'm going to tell you a quick story. Once when I was in Hong Kong, I went to a suit shop like uh, Taylor Lee's there uh, to have a suit made. It was a, it was a well-known one. And I walked in. It was, uh, it was Chinese New Year. And the traditional greeting in uh, Chinese, in Cantonese, is Kung Hi Fat Choi, which means I wish you good fortune. Mm. But the guy said it to me. He said, Kung Hi Fat Choi. And I thought he said, come here, fat boy. It was crazy. <laughs> I mean, so anyhow, that's, that, was, that was my welcome to the suit shop. Let's take your China pick. It is Qualcomm. Why? Thank you for having me, Tyler. There's a few reasons why. Um, you mentioned all the struggles that we're seeing for consumers, especially um, obviously in China. I think when you look at Qualcomm, they're doing things that it, obviously it's better for the company. If you look at their, their, they had new competitors emerging with Huawei starting back up, um, but they're still estimating that they're 35% increase in sales to Chinese smartphone companies. Some of that softness we're seeing in the smartphone uh, companies is starting to ease off a bit as there's fresh inventory. We know Apple's obviously had their new rollout, um, and they renewed their contract with Apple as well. So I think that broader move and we move over into the holiday season will ease a little bit of that softness for consumers, especially when we're thinking about electronics, which are sometimes a heavy, heavy gift, obviously, around the holiday times. Well, let's move on to our second category, which is what's going on in rates. This was our mystery chart. And your pick here is? It's, it's Charles Schwab. And I, I think 
for a couple of reasons. So the TD acquisition, they're finishing the integration. And, you know, recently they're about over even another 1.3 trillion in assets. Um, the big thing for all of March, when you think about the banks and the discount brokerage, they had a tough time. But um, I was looking at, you know, obviously their earnings. And one thing that stuck out to me was, you know, they're looking at the cash sorting. So the move from, you know, their interest bearing accounts, their bank sweeps to these higher yield, um, whether funds or different yet cash yield uh, funds, they're seeing that slow down and ease off a bit. And then I looked at the valuation for Schwab. You know, they're trading pretty favorably here. Uh, they're down close to 15 times on their price to earnings. So with the rigorous expense control that they do, um, you know, historically, I think it's a good move for investors to kind of look at Schwab, especially how it's been discounted since March. All right. Solar has been in the news with this week. How can I be a high roller in solar? So I like FSLR here in a couple of reasons. When you think of the solar companies, this is one that's obviously a growth company, but it's you know relatively stable comparably when you look at the market caps of the other solar companies and their growth expectations are still strong. So 2024, they're looking at earnings roughly going up 65%. And so if you look at their forward PE at 10 times, I think that's a potentially undervalued play for investors if they think that they can reach those expectations, you know, that's trading at a favorable discount right now. So last quarter, compared to their one of their biggest competitors, end phase. Their, their revenue expanded, their margins expanded um, on the opposite side for Enphase. So, you know, also looking at their balance sheet, Tyler, I think solid balance sheet for a growth company with less, not a lot of debt and uh, $1.3 billion in cash. Um, I think that's actually a really, really strong play potentially for investors. There are your three buys. Let's move on to the bail. And that comes out of sort of the labor market. It could come out of a lot of different sort of categories, consumer, retail and so forth. The bail is Target. Yeah, and this is what I've been holding. And so some of the positions I let go at gains, some at roughly break even, and some at losses. And I think, you know, when you look at Target and all the discretionary names right now, they're having some of them are having a lot of trouble. Um, Target's looked at, they've mentioned that obviously the high inflation the consumer's been hit with. They've also mentioned the student loan moratorium that's going away. Mm. Um, and overall, a, a weaker consumer. So, you know, when you look at the jobs data, we moved to 3.9% now unemployment this morning. Um, a lot of that less discretionary spending, I think that flows potentially from Target to more of those discount retailers like Walmart, which Walmart's been having a really, really strong year in comparison to Target. So, far year to date as far as the stock performance. So, so I think the competitor continues to gain here if a consumer even gets in a more tough position. I think, you know, Target essentially sees more. It's not at the bottom yet, but I think that bottom will come, but just not yet. All right. Delano, thank you very much. We appreciate your time today. Thank you. Delano thank Socorro, you, New Street Advisors. See you again soon. All right. Coming up, while Apple doesn't issue official guidance, management signaling its fourth quarter could be a repeat of the third, where the weakness is and why it may not be such a hot holiday for the uh, giant in technology. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Shares of Apple lower today, snapping a five-day win streak after the company beat estimates, but reported its fourth straight quarterly revenue drop after the bell yesterday. And things aren't necessarily looking better for its key fourth quarter. Steve Kovac joins us now with more. What'd you learn, Steve? Yeah, it was that guidance for the current holiday quarter, Tyler, that sent Apple shares lower last night, though easing off those lows today. Street was expecting a 5% revenue growth target for the current quarter, but CFO Luca Maestri said to expect sales to be about flat compared to uh, the year-ago quarter. So the question now is, what happened? Well, it was kind of an excuse-a-thon on the earnings call, Apple blaming foreign exchange and tough compares from product releases it had a year ago, like some new AirPods and iPads that 
didn't get new updates this year. But on top of that, we're still getting signals that iPhone demand isn't strong enough in important markets like the U.S. and China. Now, I asked CEO Tim Cook about that and specifically about renewed competition in China from Huawei, which started making phones again after taking a hiatus over the last couple years. He didn't address Huawei directly, but did say the iPhone 15 Pro models are supply constrained due to strong demand. However, he said he'll have to see how the current quarter shakes out. And still some bright spots in this Apple report, especially for services, which grew 16% to 22.3 billion dollars. That's some reaccelerating growth there. And you may be asking yourself why Apple shares just aren't down more after that disappointing outlook. Well, I'll point to what Morgan Stanley's note this morning said, reacting to those earnings, pointing out what those analysts call, quote, growth in the right places. That means iPhone and services remain relatively strong, which they say is a good sign for Apple in the longer term, Tyler. So my question is, when you ask him about demand uh, for iPhone and he says he says something like we're supply constrained, that feels right. like a very artful answer to say <laughs> it feels like a very artful answer to not answer the question of whether whether the sales are, are where he expects them or needs them to be. Right. He was he did say we're going to see how the rest of the quarter shakes out. But he said the supply constraint is the good kind of supply constraint, meaning mm -hmm. so many people want them. They literally just can't make enough phones right now mm. to get them in the hands of everyone who wants them. That's going to get easier, Tyler, as this quarter chugs along, because remember, it was around that week of Thanksgiving a year ago that they had to shut down production in China for the iPhone Pro models uh, that really damaged the quarter, caused them to miss. It's also going to make pairs for the iPhone business this quarter, this year, uh, look a lot better and easier because they're coming off that smaller base, Tyler. Steve, thank you very much. Steve Kovac reporting it. from San Francisco. Been a week in California for Steve. Thanks. All right. Customers at a number of banks, including Bank of America, Chase and Wells Fargo, are experiencing deposit delays today. The Federal Reserve has confirmed the issue, which is related to the Automated Clearinghouse, ACH, a network for processing bank transactions. Uh, businesses use this ACH system for things like direct deposits, and customers use it for direct payments of things like utility bills and mortgages. The Clearinghouse says it is working with the impacted institutions to resolve the issue. CNBC has reached out to several banks about that, and we will update you with any responses. My wife, incidentally, got word of this earlier today from a friend who was questioning whether there had been any uh, issues and whether she had heard of anything or whether I had. And now it has indeed been confirmed. There are some direct deposit issues in the banking system. Up next, from the Lone Star State to the land of Lincoln, we look at where the opportunities are in muni bonds as inflows turn positive for the first week in eight. The exchange will be right back. Muni bond picking next. Well, the signs of a slowdown ramp up uh, ever so slightly. Fixed income ETF inflows hit a near eight-month high for the week ending November 1, climbing 64% from the previous week. And muni bond flows were particularly strong, posting their first positive week in eight and seeing their best inflows of the year. Investors have pushed total, a total of $1.2 billion into those funds so far this year. And our next guest still sees some buying opportunities out there. Joining us is Dwayne McAllister, Senior Portfolio Manager at the Baird Funds. Dwayne, welcome. Good to have you with us. Uh, it's surprising Thanks, to me. Uh, I mean, I, are, are, is what's happening here, 
a recognition that people think rates are beginning to peak and that this is a, a good time to lock in maybe or to go after those higher yields? Yeah, I think that's exactly what's happening. I th I, honestly, I think people are finally coming around to realize there's just really good value in, in the bond market, uh, broadly speaking, and certainly in the municipal bond market. You know, high-quality taxable securities, you can earn roughly 6% today, you know, obviously up significantly from where we were just two or three years ago. But when you look at the, the municipal market, uh, the tax-adjusted yields there are in the range today of seven and a half to eight and a half percent depending on your tax bracket and I think the compelling value is just really beginning to come through uh, people recognize that you know you buy bonds primarily for income and safety and but if you can earn somewhere in the range of seven to eight percent now you're uh, putting yourself in a competitive game if you will uh, against other asset classes including equity and I, I think the other point is just that while you can get something like equity-like returns today in, in the muting bond market without taking a lot of risk, the volatility is probably a quarter of what it is typically in your uh, uh, S&P yeah. 500. If you're lucky enough to uh, live in a state like New Jersey, I think the tax equivalent yield might be even higher. It is. We've seen, uh, you know, uh, 9 10% if you're in New York, New Jersey, California. And these are just really, really compelling values. And I think... Uh, the other thing is that unlike the Treasury market, which obviously a big concern the last several weeks has been uh, the abundance of, of issuance and supply, uh, the muni market has been stagnant Pretty for stable. about 15 yeah. years. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we've got about $4 trillion of outstanding municipal debt. That was exactly where we were you know, after the financial crisis of 08. I would say that people perhaps underappreciate the checks and balances at the state and local government. Uh, if if your local school district wants to uh, borrow to build a new school, uh, they typically have to come to market to, or come to the voters and, and get their approval. Uh, you can imagine how challenging that, challenging that would be at the federal level, uh, particularly when we deal with the debt ceiling uh, just periodically. But uh, most states have limits on the amount of debt that can be uh, issued. So, you know, we'd love, we'd love to see more. Supply, I think, will get more over the next uh, few years, and hopefully, most, with the infrastructure. Most states spending. have to run a balanced budget. And as you just pointed out, my, my township just went through last year a big school bond uh, issuance. It was hard fought. It was $180 million to do uh, capital improvements that had been postponed. But at any rate, it, it ultimately did carry, and our taxes went up yeah. reflectively. But let's talk about, there are different pieces of the muni market. Where should, I, if I'm looking at individual, should I look at revenue bonds, GOs, what? Well, I would start first of all with our view is that you, you don't have to step down in credit quality right now. In fact, we're, we're focusing more on the higher rated issues, the AA, even AAA. Uh, one interesting little statistic is you can get 80% uh, of the yield you would receive in a B bond in a AAA bond today. So you're getting well paid to stay up in quality. And and a little acronym we've come up with is the bonds we like today are what we would call ROBs, or just regular old bonds. What <laughs> people know when they think of the muni market, the, the uh, uh, GO bonds, uh, school district bonds, uh, water sewer, essential service revenues, uh, there's All just right. really strong credits out there. And I think the final point I would make on that is just, you know, these are domestic-based revenues. Uh, this is a U.S.-centric yep. market, obviously, and it's a, it's a way to kind of escape all the uncertainty and global turmoil that we're seeing around the world. Right.
Well, Dwayne, it's been great to talk with you. I, I, I don't want to get myself too giddy here, but it's fun to talk about bonds again. Dwayne McAllister, appreciate <laughs> it. Thank you. Thanks, Tyler. All right, before we go, there's still time to nominate a leader for CNBC's changemaker list of women transforming business. The deadline is two weeks from today. On November 17th, you can submit your nomination by going to CNBC.com slash changemakers or scanning that QR code on the screen. Folks, that does it for the exchange. And there is Morgan getting ready. I'll join her on the other side of the quick break. There she is. Hey, Morgan. Be right over. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy ready to be a part of it. Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Give up. Order now at Acura.com.